Thanks for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. You guys may grab a seat. Thank you so much, worship team. Wonderful. Very, very wonderful. Good afternoon, everybody. So good to be here with you on the last day of the month. Did your parents ever say to you when you were growing up that as you get older, the years go fast and you just didn't believe them? Christmas never came. Your birthday just never came. And I'm like, oh, man, alive. Three months done and dusted already. As you get older, it does seem to go quicker. But I'm very glad that you chose to join us here this afternoon as we try and wrap up our series on Enlighten. It's been a good month. Who was here this morning? So it was a great morning. Didn't Steve preach a great message? It was very, very good. If you have been along to another service this month, at some point in time, you're probably no doubt familiar with the passage in Ephesians that's been the focus, or the series of passages or verses, I should say, around that particular one. We're going to wrap it up tonight, but we are going to bring that up again, um, just for for good measure and to keep it nice and fresh. So if we can have up Ephesians 1, 15 through 21, all verses will be relevant tonight. So we're just going to read through that again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Here we go. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We should all know that off by heart by now, right? Pretty close? No, I still don't. I still don't. Now, before I, I dive in, I didn't actually tell her this beforehand, but I'm going to give Michelle permission to sort of do the wave at me. You know how when they're at the Oscars and they kind of wind people up, like, get off the stage? So when Michelle said last time, she said, great message, just you talk a bit quick. She's like, you probably know it all because you've read it before, but not everyone else does. So I'm going to give her permission that if she thinks I'm talking a bit too quick, she can just do the, these ones and we'll slow it back down. But when I spoke uh, earlier in the month on this topic and passage... We spend a bit of time first just trying to develop a bit of an understanding around the importance of the context of this letter. Again, we understand that it is a letter, it's not a book. Paul was writing to a particular group of people. And we're asking questions like, well, who were they? What was the city of Ephesus like? And how would they have understood the things that Paul was writing to them? Would their takeaways from what he had written been different to ours, given the differences in language, culture, and the particular time in history? We looked uh, with a little bit of detail at Paul's use of the word faith in verse 15 and how behind that word is a Hebrew word immuna and that that word is characterized by a visible demonstration of faith, firm action and trust. We then touched on, before we touched on that though, Miss Sarah Croft nearly put all her trust in Pastor Steve and jumped off a ladder into his arms, but she didn't quite do it, we was lucky. We then touched on the the revelation of wisdom that Paul prayed for on behalf of the Ephesians and how that revelation is an opening of the eyes of their heart that enables them to see from God's perspective, that it opens up the sight of our inner man so that we can see as he sees. 
and that that is required if we are to see the hope to which he's called us to, the hope which is the absolute and utter reliability of God based on the already completed work of Jesus' resurrection. Now, as I'd said last time, I was quite um, keen to try and connect the two messages, take advantage of the fact that I get to preach twice uh, and just kind of flow on from where we were last time, keep digging into this passage and see what else we can pull out of there. But if you weren't with us on the 3rd of March, that is fine. There's still so much standalone value in hopefully what we work through tonight. Um, I'm always surprised, though, having been here this morning, I'm always really surprised at how the Spirit works things together. Um, the pulpit team meets every couple of months, and we're working. Amy's doing a lot of good work at the moment as we try and pull together how we do our themes and how we go about preaching and how we structure that. But we don't all sit together and sort of chat about it and kind of go, oh, what are you doing and what are you doing? And I suppose you could say that we're all preaching on fairly similar passages, so you're going to see some things that are probably similar and work across a few of the same things. But again, a lot of what Steve was talking about this morning really resonated with me and was already in my message. And so you just kind of get that feeling of, oh, well, God's doing something. Because it's not, not necessarily what you might think you'd pull out of it. And, and so I think there's something here. Um, and it's just how the Spirit tends to work and pull it together for us. So we're going to pick it up. Uh, probably halfway through verse 18, where Paul continues on pretty much until the end of the chapter in his typical style, really strong language and deep theological insights. And two of those, or two of the thoughts and insights tonight of what basically, I suppose, have informed the title for our message tonight, which is know who you are and what you are capable of. Paul makes a really curious point about identity in the first chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. And even now, about 2,000 years or so later, it is still really relevant to us. Paul knew who he was writing to. He had spent time with the Ephesians in their city. He understood their life. And he understood the pressure that members of this young church in Ephesus were under. Given the cultural context and identity, the pressure that they were under to conform and to slip back into old ways of life. Paul also knew the deep value of community in many of the ancient cultures. See, we often talk about community. We refer to this church as a community, as a family. And I think for the most part, we all kind of get it. We all realize the importance of being a part of a community and not being alone. But for the ancient Near East cultures, and for many of them still today, it wasn't actually something that they had to cultivate or work at or try and remember to bring back into play. It simply was the way of life for them. Community wasn't something they had to work at. It just was. And in those cultures, identity comes from the community. Many of them would say, I am because I belong. Paul recognizes the challenge for the Ephesian believers who by virtue of their decision to follow Jesus were effectively removing themselves out of their communities. And we need to remember that Ephesus was a significant and wealthy city. Pagan worship was ripe. The temple of Artemis this is a life that their believers in Ephesus had come out of and their now new way of life was completely at odds with the wider community. So Paul, early in his letter to them, he wants to remind them that they are not outside of community, but rather they are now part of a different community, that the source of their identity has shifted. And he does this in verse 5 of chapter 1 by saying that the Ephesians were predestined to be adopted and then he speaks a number of times about their inheritance. And when he speaks about their inheritance, what he's doing for them is confirming for them their position as children of God and as co-heirs with Jesus. Now, Paul says pretty much exactly the same thing to the church in Rome about four to six years before he wrote to the Ephesians. 
And in Romans 8, 15 through 17, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the Ephesians' identity no longer comes from their earthly families or communities. It is from their stated position as children of God. And then Paul is reminding them who they are. He is saying to them, everything that you are is now found in this new community of faith and the family that you now belong to. He then takes quite a, makes quite a point about emphasizing that this new identity, their position as children of God, carries with it or brings access to an inheritance. So as a child of, you are an heir of, and so you stand in line to inherit Four times across the whole letter, Paul uses that word inheritance, but three of them are found right here in chapter 1. So it's clearly an important point that he wants to make early, and he wants the Ephesians to possess in their hearts. He wants them to understand, you have an inheritance as a child of God. Now, interestingly, whilst there are, of course, similarities in the basic premise of inheritance between their day and ours, it is a little bit different, and it was likely a slightly clearer analogy for them than it is us. How many of us here have heard around the table with family about the grey nomads who are spending their kids' inheritance, retiring and then taking off around the country? We joke about it all the time. My parents are going through it like fire. It's all over the place. (laughs) And then the stories you hear at times about somebody who's left a gift or an inheritance to a charity or to a cause or to a waiter or waitress that they developed a relationship with over time. Some people leave it to their pets. There's a New York hotelier, Leona Helmsley, who in 2007 left $12 million to her pet terrier at the same time that she took two of her four grandchildren out of the will entirely. Now, there is nothing wrong with leaving an inheritance to a charity or a cause that is close to your heart. And if it's the thing that floats your boat, then leave it to your pet, I suppose. But in biblical times... The process or the provision and allocation of inheritance, it actually followed a far more culturally ingrained set of practices. In the biblical narrative, there is nothing that I can do to inherit. It is not in any way based on what I do. I can't somehow impress over time or develop a relationship that will see me get included into a will or into the inheritance. I don't need to secure additional favor with my parents so that I'm included. And I can't work my way in or legally fight for a portion of the inheritance. It has nothing to do with our actions. It's based on who we are. Paul is speaking in terms that would have made a lot of sense to the Ephesians. A son does nothing to be granted an inheritance. It is simply a gift given to those in right relationship. It is a guarantee based on our position and our identity as God's children. Paul's message to the church in Ephesus remains just as valid for us today. Know who you are. Despite everything that might be going on around you, despite the challenges of the city that you live in and that once you freely and actively participated in, despite the pull of your earthly families and communities, despite all the spiritual noise that might be going on around you, again, Ephesus, highly spiritual city, despite all of that, know who you are. You are a child of the Most High God, and you stand ready to inherit. Choking up. You stand ready to inherit as a result. 
Paul is pressing this home hard in chapter 1. Verse 5, He, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And then three times, four, I didn't think it was that emotional. (laughs) Someone tell a joke or something. Do something. Three times in quick succession, straight after that, he says, inheritance, inheritance, inheritance. Know who you are. But as is so often the case, there's always a little more to it than what we see immediately in front of us. So now I need to pick on somebody. I need someone to come and help me for a little bit. Sarah, could I get you to grab our table and our little box? Is there anybody here who's a little bit squeamish? If you are, you don't want to come up. That's the... I will pick on people if I don't have a volunteer. Hannah, do you want to come on up? Just because I can see you laughing and you're on the end there. Come on up. Let me just have a quick look that it's not moving around too much. Let me just check. Let me just check. Let me just check. We're good. Come on, Hannah. Up you come. All right. Yeah, we might. Now, do you have, are you allergic to anything in particular? Uh, where do I start? All right, where do you start? You got the bandos ready? Okay. So, what is in here is yours to keep. This is a gift from me, freely given for you, but you're going to have to reach in and take it. Search around a little bit for it. Okay? Be happy to put your hand in. You can't look. You're going to sneak your hand in underneath. In it goes. In it goes. No squealing. It's not too dangerous. Just feel around for a little bit. See if you can feel something that you think might be worth taking out of there. We can get the antiseptic later. I'm washing hands afterwards. Just keep feeling around a little bit in there. There'll be something in there that's probably worth pulling out. Yeah, if you think you've got it. No, that's great, but that's not what you need to pull out. There's a wrinkly old zucchini. Keep digging, keep searching. No. Yeah, it's a big squishy poo emoji that belongs to my son. <laughs> That's one of these. We'll put that out there. <laughs> keep digging. Keep digging. Oh, it's a thumb, a plastic thumb. What else have we got in there? Keep digging. There'll be something else in there that's worth pulling out. Those things are not necessarily worth pulling out, but that's okay. There's a wig. There's a wig. Good. It's still in there. It's still in there. Come on. Still in there. Unless one of my kids has gotten in and ripped it off first. Oh, she found it. There's a little bit of money in there. Fantastic. It's yours to keep. Please. No, no. It's yours to keep. It is yours to keep. The analogy doesn't work unless you take it and keep it. But I'll put the pool emoji back in there. Good job. All right. So, why this? Here <laughs> to try to pace to come to church. All right. Why this silly little analogy? Why another little object lesson? And this is where I get my nerd on. Because the Greek word for inheritance, kleronomio, combines two thoughts. One is to have in one's power, and the second is a lot, is in your lot in the inheritance, or what has been allotted to you. And the Hebrew word behind the Greek that's being used is the word yurash, and it means to take possession of, to possess, to drive out, and to inherit. These words, and Paul's use of them, recall the division of the land by lots when Israel inherited Canaan. So the event of moving into, taking possession of, and dividing up the land, land became the established paradigm case for how inheritance would work in the nation of Israel. This is what's in Paul's mind when he's writing to the Ephesians. See, Urash is about conquering the land, but their actions didn't create the inheritance. God gave the land to Israel. What was in the box was Hannah's to take, but she had to put the hands in and she had to possess it. 
Israel did nothing to earn it, but they still needed to take possession. They needed to take possession of what God had already given. The gift is there thanks only to God and our relationship to him as his children, but we must go to battle to possess it. It is our one-time decision to follow Christ that brings us into the relationship that means we are due in inheritance, in grace, freedom, power, and the rest of eternity in their Father's presence. But much like the Ephesians, we need to continue possessing it daily, taking ownership of it as the world and the culture around us constantly challenges the validity of it and as they try and cause us to dispossess what is rightfully ours. The Ephesian believers, as Paul well knew, had the temple of Artemis and a city of people passionate for their pagan goddess. We have a city and a culture that seems passionate for everything but our God. And so Paul wants us to remember our identity as children of God. And he wants us to be reminded of the identity that comes with that and the inheritance that flows with that. But he also needs us to know that we have to pick it up daily and we have to put it on before we step outside and before we go to possess that which he's given us. Later on, Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. Paul knows that when you're in the culture, when you're in community, when you're perhaps the minority, when things seem to be against you, it can be easy to forget who you are. But it's the enlightening of our hearts that enables us or grants us the ability to see from his perspective. It allows us in this instance to see our own identity as he sees it. Too often, we can get caught up in not being able to see ourselves as God sees us. Our own sin, our relationships, our workplaces, whatever it might be, we get stuck in our heads and it's very difficult to actually see ourselves as God sees us. So it needs to be the eyes of our heart that see that. We have to hold that in our hearts. And that's important because when the world around us wants to question, adjust or change our identity, we have the heartfelt confidence to stand on the one that we already have. It's to truly know who we are. Once you know who you are, though, you begin to see more clearly what you are capable of. What does your identity as a child of God, as a part of this family, give you access to? What is included in the inheritance that we stand to receive? That, I believe, is a well that is both deep and wide full of immeasurable blessings, hope, joy, and peace, but also suffering. The passage from Romans that we read a little earlier, chapter 8, verses 15 and 17, actually points this out for us when it concludes in verse 17 by saying, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And in Acts chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, it reads, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, this is the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So the Bible makes it pretty clear that sharing in the sufferings of Jesus is definitely a part of the inheritance that we are to receive as co-heirs with him. And incredibly, if we are to follow in the footsteps of the disciples or the apostles, we should be rejoicing when that occurs. I don't think this is the emphasis, though, of Paul's instruction at this point in time. In verse 19 and 20, he starts to conclude his thoughts for this section of the letter. 
He starts indicating off that one of the reasons he would see the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts opened is so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not just in this age, but also in the one to come. Now again, if we think contextually about this with the city of Ephesus in mind, I believe that Paul's being very intentional in his focus on the power available to believers as a part of the inheritance from God. And I think the wisdom of this statement applies equally today. So Paul says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. This is Paul having a crack at the deity of the day in Ephesus. This is his dismissal of the acknowledged seat of power in that city, the goddess Artemis. If you were here when I spoke earlier in the month, you may remember that we went back to Acts chapter 19, 27 through to 34. It tells the story of when Paul is actually in the city of Ephesus on one of his journeys. They get a bit fired up, the beginnings of a riot, and you end up with 20-something thousand people packed into the, the city's theater or the stadium and chanting the name of Artemis for hours on end. Paul knows what the Ephesians are up against. And so now he writes to the followers of Jesus living in this city amongst and significantly outnumbered by passionate proclaimers of Artemis. And he says, no. Know who you are and know what you are capable of. Remember what you have access to as a fellow heir with Christ. The same power that worked in him when he was raised from the dead and not only that, but he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, above all rule, all authority, all dominion, and above every name. Explicitly here, the goddess Artemis. But not just in this age, in the one to come. So it doesn't matter who's next in line. It doesn't matter who the next deity or the next power or the next person or whatever it might be that culture throws up. Paul's going, I don't care. It doesn't matter who gets thrown up at any point in history. God sits above all of them. Christ is over all of them. And he is exhorting them and us with the opened eyes of our hearts to see our identities. And as such, the incredible power that we have access to. The JNT translation says in verse 19, the surpassingly great power working in us. And uh, this morning, I'm not sure what translation Steve Miles was using, but I think he said the um, incomparably great power. And I think both of those actually capture Paul's meaning a little better than immeasurably does. Because they actually acknowledge the very real challenge faced by the Ephesians. They were contending with very real spiritual powers. So to say that God's surpassingly great power, well, what it does is it actually sparks the question of, well, what does it pass? What is it leaving behind? Every other power of the day. All the other powers take a back seat. And if we head back into Acts for just one moment, we'll see this play out in the city. Acts 19, 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. 
but the evil spirit, and this is so good, answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. Who are you? So good. Just get dissed by a devil. I was like, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and he overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We might not always see it exactly the same way as this. You might have. I've not seen anyone running around naked and beaten up by an evil spirit. But if you for one moment think that there are not spiritual powers at work in our city, then you're not really catching on. We contest with very real spiritual powers in this city, in particular possibly because we are the seat of power in this nation. When you go to work, you contend with spiritual powers. When you engage in your communities, those who don't know God, and some would say more now than ever, given some of the things we're facing as believers in Jesus. But Paul's words to the Ephesian believers remind them and us, remember when I was there with you. Remember the miracles that you witnessed. The power of God which overcame the powers of darkness in your city and the ones that you were once engaging with. That power you saw is the very same that saw Jesus raised from the dead. And it remains a part of your inheritance. Own it. Possess it. And put it to work. It's going to read a couple of pages now from a book by Bill Johnson. It's called The Supernatural Power of a Transformed Mind. And uh, it's a good read. If you can get your hands on a copy, I would recommend it. And, uh, but I just want to read a few pages because I think it actually helps bring it into our day and age a little bit. So Bill Johnson's the senior pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, fairly well-known church, um, and really work really heavily in the spirit, and there's lots of stuff that happens for those guys, but I'm just going to read here. In our school of ministry, we train people in signs and wonders, and are especially keen to learn how to operate in the supernatural outside the four walls of the church. We encourage our students by giving them specific assignments to invite God to work in public places. One day after class, a bunch of students from our worship school went to visit a lady in the hospital. She had a brain tumour, was deaf in one ear and was losing feeling on the right side of her body. She spoke with great difficulty, slurring her words, and she was in terrible pain. Instead of laying hands on her and praying, the students surrounded her in worship, singing songs, expressing their love to the Lord. Pretty soon the woman said, my ears opened, my speech is clearer. She started speaking clearly. Pretty soon she was moving her limbs around and she exclaimed, all the pain is gone. God overhauled her body when a worship service broke out around her. When we do the will of God, we bring kingdom reality crashing into the works of the devil. We initiate conflict between earthly reality and heavenly reality, becoming the bridge and the connection point that makes it possible through power and radical obedience to assert the rulership of God. Not long ago, a woman with a broken arm came to our church with her wrist in such pain that we couldn't even touch her skin to pray for it. We held our hands away and prayed, and within moments, God healed it completely. She had no pain and was twisting the wrist all around. The arm was totally different than it had been seconds earlier. 
Kingdom reality had overwhelmed one of the devil's works. That's the normal Christian life I'm talking about. Some of our local church leaders had a Native American reconciliation event, and many more people showed up than were expected. We had only four salmon to feed about 900 people, but those four salmon fed everybody full to the brim with leftovers. That's not possible in the natural, but it is in the normal Christian life. Besides the weekly feeding of the poor, we have an annual holiday feast in which families from church adopt a table in our gym and decorate it with Christmas decorations. The tables are set with our finest china, crystal and silverware. We then bust the needy to this event held in their honour. This past year, we served prime rib. We started with 34 roasts to feed two seatings of about 500 people. After serving 19 roasts in the first seating, we realised that the 15 we had left were not enough for the 200 workers plus the second group of 500. The decision was made to not feed the workers. But when they went back into the kitchen, there were 22. Seven more had mysteriously appeared. The workers were then fed, as was the second group of needy people. Now that should have exhausted our mysterious 22 roasts, but there were 12 more left after everybody had eaten. Multiplying bread is great, but I really like seeing prime rib multiply. (laughs) Aren't you tired of talking about a gospel of power, but never seeing it in action? Aren't you tired of trying to carry out the Great Commission without offering proof that the kingdom works? Too many of us have been like a vacuum cleaner salesman who comes to the door and throws a handful of dirt on the floor and says, I represent the new whiz-bang vacuum cleaner company. My vacuum cleaner is so strong that you have to remove pets and small children from the room. It sucks up everything in sight. But instead of demonstrating the vacuum cleaner, he simply hands you a brochure, promises you that machine will work, and walks away. That's cheating people. Yet it's often how we preach the gospel. We tell people how great the product is, but we seldom demonstrate or prove it. What an incredible way to do life, hey? But as Bill Johnson says a couple of times in there, that's the normal Christian life. I've never had a roast multiply on me. Wouldn't mind it though. For us as a church, are we able to take on board the power that we have available to us? Are we able to take that into our workplaces? Are we able to actually see that come into play here in church and see permanent change work in the life of people? Are we able to recognize the very real spiritual powers that we're up against as followers of Jesus and are we able to come up against them and for them to realize that, well, they actually haven't got a hope. With the eyes of our hearts enlightened to see as God sees, so from his perspective, our identity as his children becomes so clear and concrete for us. And when that occurs, so much more real can the practical outworking of his great power in our life and in the lives of those around us become. I'm just going to get the band to come back up now. We're going to sing through uh, that song, Who You Say I Am. We won't take too long. We'll just sing it through, take a few moments, and then I'll hop back up and pray at the end to wrap it up. But as we're singing this, really pray about that. Take it on board. God, who do you say I am? What is my identity in you? Remind me of the power that I have available in you and help me put that into practice. Father God, we give you thanks that we are your children. Jesus, we thank you that we are who you say we are. We are not who the world says that we are. 
that, Father, we need not adjust, change, move or shift our identity for anybody. Father God, we ask and we pray for that spirit of power to come upon everybody in this church, in this community, Lord God, that we would all recognize and understand what we have access to as part of the inheritance that we have as your children. Father, I pray a blessing over the people of this church, Lord God, that we would know our identity, that we would stand on our identity, Lord God, that we would not waver, Father God, And in the name that is above every name and above every power and every authority, in the name of Jesus, we give you thanks. Father God, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you have any prayer needs, email prayer at c3monash.org.au or connect with us online.